Please open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel uh, 21. We're going to look at the entire uh, chapter this evening as we consider David on the run. David on the run. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21. And let's begin reading at verse number 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there out of the showbread which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because, you know, the king's business required haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, actually. The Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it, give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, And let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David therefore departed from there. And escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
Now, when we left off in our study of 1 Samuel, which has been quite a bit ago, about a little over a month ago, uh, David had just been affirmed by Jonathan that Saul was indeed out to kill him. And I want to catch us up, especially if you're just joining us here for our study, because this whole episode of Saul trying to kill him, it's, it's the result of deeply rooted jealousy, and anger, and hatred by King Saul toward David. God has, of course, removed the kingdom from Saul and his seed and has chosen David to be the anointed king of Israel. And as a result, Saul has contrived many devious plots and schemes in order to take David out. And I'm not just talking about out of the picture, but out of life itself. But in our study, we have seen that God has been faithful to protect David who indeed is his chosen anointed king. So so the last words of Jonathan to David there in chapter 20 and verse 42, after Jonathan affirmed to David his suspicions, which is Saul, yes, is out to kill you. Jonathan tells his dear friend David to go in peace. He knows David is on the run for his life, but he tells David... As you run for your life, go in peace. But when we open up chapter 21, we find David as a man filled with fear as he runs for his life, not not peace. So chapter 21 marks for us the last third of the book of 1 Samuel. And you'll notice we study through this that this last third of the book is devoted to David on the run. And it covers a period of about 10 years of David's life running from King Saul. Of course, this is also a unique section of the book because as we will discover tonight and in the weeks to come that many of the Psalms of David that we sing and study and read in the book of Psalms will come to light as we look at this section of 1 Samuel, which is David's troubled days and dark days and days of suffering and adversity. And of course, we begin with that this evening. Now, I I am best helped in understanding chapter 21, which by the way, it's not an easy chapter to understand. You you might think just reading it on the surface would give us a a, a little bit of a good idea of what's unfolding, but when you you study this out in the nuts of bolts, there's there's, there's a lot of things happening here that are not easy to get. And so I am best helped in understanding it by three words, and this is how I have outlined it, or at least uh, put headers over the sections of chapter 21 to help me best understand it. I hope it will do the same for you. Those three words are fear, uh, craziness, and then deliverance, all right? Those are the three words that we're going to go through tonight, fear, craziness, and deliverance. I've just given you the cheat sheet for what the outline is going to be. And I noticed my son did that with Pastor Stephen this week on one of the services. I think it was Saturday night. I walked into my office before church even started, and Keegan held up his uh, handout, and all the blanks were already filled in. I said, how did you get that? He said, I asked Pastor Stephen what his sermon was going to be, so I've already got it filled out. Well, I've already filled it out for you, but just follow me as we go through this. Fear, okay, craziness, and then deliverance. Let's look, first of all, at 
Fear, fear. Now, now I use the word fear, which is the header over verses 1 through 9, because David, as we see here, is being gripped by a season of fear. He's on the run. And the first place that he goes is a town called Nob. And as he arrives, the Bible tells us that he heads directly to Ahimelech, who is a priest in the city of Nob, the town of Nob. You'll also find it interesting that Ahimelech was the great-grandson of Eli. Now, as David arrived, Ahimelech, as we see here in verse 1, was immediately afraid himself. And this fear seems to be directly related to David's appearance. Look at it in verse 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So obviously right here at the beginning, Ahimelech realizes that David, even though he is not yet taken the throne of the kingdom of Israel. He is still a part of King Saul's cabinet, if you will. He is one of the mighty men of war. And so even Ahimelech realizes that for David to be alone is not normal. This is not normal. It would would be odd to see David walking around the town of Nob without an entourage with him, at least a group of men or, or soldiers, guardsmen, however you want to describe it, that would travel from place to place with a person of his royal position. Now, I'm sure also that not only was it not normal to see a man like David by himself, but David had to have also had the appearance of one who was in deep distress. Because when he comes here, he's obviously asking for bread. So So he's hungry. We don't know how long it has been since he has had food. He's running for his life. As we see this chapter unfolding, he's very much afraid of King Saul and what could come of him. And so as it is in all of our lives, in times of suffering and adversity, when we're uh, hungry, when we need nourishment and sustenance, and then emotionally we're in turmoil, we just don't look right. And Ahimelech realizes this at the very beginning. So he asks him, why are you alone? What, what, what are you doing here all by yourself? And here's how David responded to Ahimelech's question. Look at it in verse 2. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men, this would be his entourage, to such and such a place. Now, the first part of verse 2, David's reply to Ahimelech is without question a lie. And this is where the header fear stuck out in my mind during my study. Because David is fabricating this story because he is afraid for his life. He indicates to Ahimelech that the reason why he's there alone is because he is on a secret mission. He is there on the business of the king. Now, we, we might would say, well, pastor, isn't that kind of true? He is there because of the king. Yeah, he's there because of the king, but not in the way that he presented it to be the case. He's being dishonest. 
He's lying about even the trouble that he's in. Now, Scripture doesn't pause here to address the deception. And because of that, when we study a passage of Scripture like this, we may even try to excuse it because Scripture doesn't address it. But let me just remind us all tonight, a lie is a lie, regardless of the motive for it. And as we will see, not tonight, but next time in our study in chapter 22, David's going to come to horribly regret it. Now, with all that being said, we also don't throw stones at David. In fact, we sympathize with him. Because many of us have or would do the same thing in a fearful situation. In fact, there's not a person in this room that hasn't told a lie at some point in their life. Hasn't fabricated a story. Hasn't intentionally or unintentionally deceived someone else. And thank God for his grace and mercy when the nature of our flesh seems to lead the way in those scenarios. But let's be sympathetic because of that in our own lives. Looking at his situation, it would probably be very similar to an intruder coming to my home tonight and saying, I'm going to kill your wife and children are they home? Well, my natural instinct would probably say, no, they're not home. But regardless of the motive, a lie is a lie. Under fear, I may say, my wife and children are not home, in the same way that David, under fear, says, hey, I'm here on the king's business. Why is he doing that? Perhaps he's protecting himself from even Ahimelech not knowing where he might be on the spectrum of Saul's anger and hatred toward him. Now, I think this needs to be a reminder to us, as we we will see, that, that any attempt to scheme our way through a problem, are you with me? I'm preaching to myself tonight, too. Any attempt to scheme our way through a problem rather than trusting God, it will always lead to misery and regret. So it may not look that bad right now, but we're going to discover quickly as we come to chapter 22 that what David did here was a domino effect of a lot of problems. Now, the second part, he says, that he has directed my young men to such a, or I have, David says, I've directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, we simply don't know if he's lying about this or not. Ahimelech sees him alone. He's by himself. That's obviously true. But, but David has suggested that the men traveling with him are waiting somewhere else. Is that the truth? Well, we don't know. It could be that this is more fabrication. This is more exaggeration. But, 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 but I would at least draw our attention to the fact that when Jesus himself referenced this story, and he does in the Gospels, he references this story in Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 12, And I believe in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus references this in the Gospels, he tells the stories, he actually acknowledges that men were with David. Now, we also come to chapter 22, as we will look at next week, and we discover that men are with him there after he is delivered from Gath. 
So, so it's quite possible that, that the first part was a bold-faced lie, yes, and the second part was true, that the men are maybe hiding out somewhere else as not to direct too much attention to David. We just simply don't know. What we do know as we come to verses 3 through 5 that David was hungry as he approached Ahimelech, and he asked for bread to eat. Notice the exchange that they had in verse the three says, now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, that is, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Of course, David answered the priest and said to him, truly, women have been kept from us for about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy. And the bread is, in effect, common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. Now, the holy bread, what is this holy bread that seems to be a problem here? The, the, the holy bread is known as the show bread, the show bread, as we call it when we talk about the different placement of the tabernacle furniture, uh, furniture the, the table of show bread, okay? This is the bread that would go on top of the table of show bread, and it's consecrated for use in the tabernacle on the Sabbath day, which would make sense why Ahimelech has this bread in his possession because he's the priest. And it's the job of the priest to prepare this bread and consecrate it as holy bread to be used on the Sabbath day. It may very well be that this particular day in which Ahimelech is approached by David is also the Sabbath day. But here's the thing. Not only was it only to be used in the tabernacle by the priest, it was only to be eaten by the priest. This story unfolding for us in 1 Samuel 21, which is often difficult to interpret on, the own, on our own, is a wonderful example, and I'm, and I'm going to the side here, so I will get back just to a moment. But this is a wonderful example of how when we study our Bibles, we need to understand that studying one passage of Scripture needs to be understood within the whole context of the Bible. So we would not get all of this information in 1 Samuel chapter 21 if we didn't understand Leviticus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 25, where it talks about these distinctions and why this is a problem. But regardless of that, Ahimelech offers this bread to David. That is, if he and his men had not engaged in sexual relations while on the king's business. You say, well, why is that a problem? Well, because according to Leviticus chapter 15, as well as Exodus chapter 19, this was also a part of the Levitical law of ritual cleansing. This was a part of what God had established for the people that before we go in to partake in such an experience, there had to be an element of ceremonial and ritual cleansing. David was clear that both he and his men, as well as their vessels, their backpack, their armor, whatever it is, they're they're all ritually clean. They had not been defiled in such a part. So in verse number 6, the priest actually gives David the holy bread. Look at it there in verse 6. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. Excuse me, I'm reading verse 4. Let me go down to verse 6. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day in which it was taken away. Now, again, we could talk about this more in another setting. The big question with this passage as we study it is why in the world did the priest bend the law by giving David the holy bread to eat when it was only supposed to be used for the tabernacle and it was only supposed to be eaten by the priest? Why did he bend the law? 
Now, I don't think it's as easy as say that he just simply overlooked it. Because if he was overlooking the law, then why would he bring attention to their ceremonial cleansing? The fact that they had abstained from sexual relations in order to embrace the bread. So this is not as simple as overlooking the law. Ahimelech is very focused on the law. Now, I don't know that we can know for sure why Ahimelech did this. However, let me just give you a couple things to think about. One, Jesus used this story in the Gospels to combat the legalism of the Pharisees who were criticizing Jesus' disciples for plucking the heads of grain and eating it on the Sabbath day. If you want just one of those references, let me give you one. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We don't have time to turn there and read that tonight, but maybe you jot it down in your notes and read it when you get home later this evening. Jesus was accused by the Pharisees for breaking the law of God because on the Sabbath day, while walking down the path, the disciples picked the ears of corn, they picked the grain, they began to eat it. And so in that explanation, Jesus returns to verse Samuel chapter 21 and reminds them, have you not read the story about David? When he was given holy bread, perhaps on the Sabbath day, it was against the custom. It was against the, the law that they had established, so to speak, but, but yet Jesus approved of it and God permitted it. In that particular situation, the Pharisees were more concerned about their laws than they were serving the anointed one of God. The, the main issue that day was the fact that they would not recognize Jesus for who he was. And who was Jesus? He was the Messiah. He is God. He is the anointed one. And had they realized that, then they would understand that Jesus permitting the disciples to pluck the ear of corn and eat it on the Sabbath day was no big deal because Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you didn't create the Sabbath for me. I created the Sabbath for you. Therefore, I have the right to dictate what goes on on the Sabbath. So, so, so there's one element of this that perhaps God in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, is giving us a little teaching about Pharisaicalism and legalism even in that day. Perhaps Saul is a good example of the Pharisees that came against the Lord. I think another thing to think about is consider who it was who was making the request. Who is it that's asking for the holy bread? It's God's anointed one. God's anointed one. So in the same principle in the gospel where Jesus permits such an action to take place because of who he is, Ahimelech allows the holy bread to be eaten going against the religious observances because of who it was asking for it. This is God's chosen one. This is God's anointed one. This is God's king. I'll leave that there for you to figure it out. But either way, Ahimelech gave David the holy bread. And then we come to verse 7 and we see what really is a parenthetical verse that will make more sense as we come to chapter 22. Let me at least read it for you. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg. It just sounds like he's a winner. His name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Who is this Doeg? We'll find out more about him when we come to chapter 22. But what we do understand him to be in this parenthetical verse, Doeg is not an Israelite. He's an Edomite. 
We don't know how he came under Saul's jurisdiction, perhaps in a victory. He's now become a servant of Saul. But really what he is, is he's, he's Saul's strong man. You know what I mean when I say that? This is, this is Saul's villain, right? He's the one that he sends out to do his, his dirty work. And here he is in Nob, all right, lurking in the shadows. It's as if Saul knew that David might flee to the town which is known to be the, the city of priests. David was very much... Uh, geared toward the priestly work and the observances of of God's tabernacle. So perhaps Saul knew this is where David would flee to, and if that's where David would flee to, let me make sure I have my strong man there lurking in the shadows, ready to report back to me if he arrives. And so that's all we're given in this scene, and that's all we're going to touch base on that. We'll come back to him in verse 22, and we'll realize what a villainous figure that he is. The writer just wants us to know that, hey, when all this is going, this exchange, what is going on between David and Ahimelech, uh, uh, Doeg, the Edomite, is observing it all. So after he receives the bread, verse 8 and 9, David asks Ahimelech for one more thing. Verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required... Haste. Now, I think personally David knew all along there was a special sword there. I don't think he's just randomly, of all the priests, showing up at Ahimelech's door, just randomly asking, oh, by the way, I don't have any weapons. Do you have any on board? I think he knew. I think he knew it was there. But once again, he's continuing in his lie. He says, you have any weapons? Because, you know, I'm, I'm really in a hurry. And I'm doing the king's business. In fact, I was so much in a hurry, I didn't even have time to get my own weapons. And I got to go on with it, you know. And king's business, I think you'd agree with me, did require haste. But not in the way David was presenting it to Ahimelech. And because David was on the run from the king's business. He was not on the run for the king's business. And so this sword is offered to him. Look at it in verse 9. The priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you just so happened to kill in the valley of Eli. There it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other that is weapon except that one here. So Ahimelech offers Goliath's sword to David and David's response was in verse 10, or excuse me, verse, verse 9, there is none like it. There is none like it. Think about this for a moment, what David is saying. There is none like it. Give it to me. Now, again, this very well may be the purpose of David's visit to Ahimelech. The, the, the Bible doesn't record for us any details about how... Goliath's sword went from being in David's tent the day that he killed him as a little boy or as a young man to now fast forward these many years. He's no longer a shepherd boy. He's now a man of war. And it's in Ahimelech, the priest, possession. We don't know how it got there. But I think David knew it was there. And this is why he goes to visit Ahimelech. But here's the thing that I know. When, when David says, there's none like it, give it to me. 
I think David may have forgotten how that victory over Goliath was actually won. Remember our header over this section? And this is going to be the longest of the three sections. Please don't tune me out yet. The header is fear. Fear. And how was it that David killed Goliath? Well, he didn't do it with Saul's armor. It was offered to him, but he removed it. He defeated Goliath with bold faith in God. And it seems like right now, that's what David's missing. He is so afraid of his life that he's thinking about the great sword of Goliath rather than the mighty power of God. David Guzik, a commentator, says David can have the sword of Goliath in his arsenal, but he would be better equipped if he had the faith that killed Goliath. Let me say to his church, there's nothing wrong with using Goliath's sword as long as it was being used out of a heart of faith and not fear. It seems to me that as it is in many of our lives that David in a moment of intense fear and adversity begins relying upon the flesh and he does the power of God. Fear. All right, the second word, craziness, craziness. And I'm not just talking about some of your husbands. The run David is on goes from apparent fear to a little bit of crazy. Look at it in verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. So when it says he ran from Saul, it doesn't mean that Saul was present. What it means is that he is now leaving the region, the domain of Saul's authority, all right? He is leaving the domain of Saul's authority and is now entering into the land of the Philistines, specifically the town of Gath. Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound familiar to any of us? What do we know about Gath? If you remember all the way back in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, Gath was the hometown of Goliath. This is crazy. David is the number one enemy of the Philistines. The number one enemy of the Philistines. And now he enters into the hometown of the giant that he killed. And subsequently, many others that died that day because of his defeating of Goliath. Wonder how many widows were walking around the town of Gath because that little shepherd boy destroyed their husbands. This is crazy. He's walking in enemy territory. If it doesn't get any more crazier than what we think it is, what does he do? He enters in the town of Gath with the sword of the giant that he killed. The sword of Goliath. Now, I wrote down in my notes. I like to share with you sometimes what I write down in my notes as I'm thinking and studying this for myself. Here's exactly what I wrote down. I'm not sure if this is courage or reckless. So I'm going to label it crazy. Now, perhaps this is the only place he knew Saul wouldn't look for him. Because it is kind of crazy. Who would think David would actually go into enemy territory? I mean, in the same town where all these people hate him. 
Maybe David knew that men would not be lurking in the shadows there. Which shows us, this is how crazy it is. He seems to fear Saul more than he does the Philistines. And however he entered, undercover perhaps, that David's identity is soon discovered. Look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? By the way, where did the idea that David was king of the land come from? Nobody knew that. That, that whole anointing ceremony was a private anointing ceremony. It seems that the Philistines have an assumption about David. And we see where that assumption comes from. The very next question. Did they not sing of him to one another in the dances saying, Saul is slain his thousands and David is ten thousands? Listen, this, this story is traveling. <laughs> you remember when they came back from defeating Goliath and all the ladies were singing this in the street? That's when Saul got angry. Because it was demeaning to Saul. Yeah, Saul's good. He's slaying thousands. But David, ten thousands. He's better than Saul. Well, that whole song has become popular in Gath. They're aware of the song. They're aware that David is the one that killed Goliath and took out their husbands. And now he's actually standing right in front of them. Now, verse 12 says that David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. See, fear is dominating this entire season that David is in. And what we understand in verse number 13 is immediately upon discovering him, they take him into custody. He's in their hands, the Bible says. Now, this is where the Psalms help us to understand the mindset and setting of David. There's two Psalms that you need to be really familiar with when it comes to 1 Samuel 21. Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. Here's the subscript to Psalm 56. It's called a mictum of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. So even though it's not recorded in in 1 Samuel 21, we have in Psalm chapter 56 exactly what David is experiencing when he comes into the custody of the enemies, the Philistines. Let me just... Describe to you how David described the situation in verse 1 of Psalm 56. It says, man swallows me up. There is fighting all day. Man oppresses me. My enemies hound me all day. There are many who fight against me. Verse 3, I am afraid, David says. Verse 5, all day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me forever. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps when they lie and wait for my life. All right, so now we see in Psalm 56, this ain't good. David feels once again that there is just a step between he and death. And in verse 13, back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, what does he do? He pretends to be insane. Acting like a madman. Verse 31, so he changed his behavior before them. Pretended madness in their hands. Scratched on the doors of the gate. That just gives me a bad chill every time I read that. I don't like anything on my fingernails. I keep them cut very, very short. The the sound of scratching on on a gate is just 
Ugh, just the thought of it gives me a weird chill. He's, he's pretending to be mad and say, scratching on the doors of the gate. He let his saliva fall down on his beard. What's the big deal about that? Well, the beard in this culture was a sacred part of a man. It is in my home too. It's a sacred part. So spit or drool of any kind in a man's beard in that culture, it was degrading to him. It was insulting. And a normal man in that culture would never permit that kind of thing to happen. And so it's more than just letting us know what he did. It's showing us just how crazy David is acting. Well, it worked. Because look at verse 14. Achaeus said to his servants, look, you see this man? This is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen? It's actually an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. That first part, verse 15, have I need of madmen? It, it implies, do I need more madmen? He's like, I got enough crazy men around here. Why would I add another one to my collection? Why, why would you bring this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? You see, there was an ancient superstition that existed in this day. And the superstition was, if anyone harms a lunatic, he would bring upon himself bad luck and misfortune. Seems like David knew that. And it seems like Achish stuck to that theory. We're not going to mess with him. We're not going to touch him. Let him go. Which leads me to the third word. It's the word deliverance. Fear, craziness, deliverance. Verse 1 of chapter 22. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So David's on the run. From Nob to Gath, from Gath to the cave of Adullam. And he's miraculously delivered. He escaped the fearful hands of the Philistines. I told you just, just a moment ago that Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 are imperative to our understanding of this episode. And that's how we're going to close today. Because Psalm 56 shows us that at some point while in Gath, David repented of his scheming. At some point while under the Philistines and King Achish's dominion, he sought God's mercy. And instead of being afraid, he started trusting God again. I want you to see this. Go, go back quickly. Click, go over quickly with me to Psalm 56. All right? Let's just close with these two Psalms. Psalm 56. Now, don't get upset with me. I ain't preached in two weeks, and on Wednesday nights over a month, i got to get this in, or we're going to be in 1 Samuel for a decade. Psalm 56. I want, to, I want to put this in your mind. I want you to see this. Psalm 56. All right, this is why he's there. He, he, he's imprisoned. He realizes what he's done. He, he's messed things up. And he says in verse 1, Psalm 56, Be merciful to me, O God. For man would swallow me up, fighting all day he oppresses me. My enemies hound me all day. There are many who fight against me. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Oh, now we see the tune changing a little bit. Finally learning to trust in God again. In God, verse 4, I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. 
All day they twist my words, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? He asked God in anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. It's exactly what he's doing. He's running. He's running. You've numbered my running. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me, David says. I don't know where it was when he began to sing this. Maybe he's in the prison. Maybe he's literally scratching on someone's door. Maybe he's cleaning out the spit from his beard. But he finally came to what we all need to come to in our moments of fear and craziness. And that is getting back to trusting God. He says in verse 12, vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. You have delivered my soul from death. He was about to die. And here God comes and delivers him. And he's praising God for it. Have you not kept my feet from falling? That I may walk before God in the light of the living. It's as, if, it's as if when David turned to trust the Lord in this situation, wherever it happened in Gath, it's as if that moment he decided to trust the Lord. The Lord in return said to David, David, it's craziness that you came to Gath. It's craziness that you picked up Goliath's sword. It's crazy that you're on the run. But David... Since you're trusting me again, keep acting like a madman, and I'll get you out of this. That seems to be what God's response is. You made the mess, but now that you've trusted me again, I'm going to get you out of this. And that's where we come to Psalm 34. Turn over there real quickly. Psalm 34 was David's hymn of praise after God Delivered him from King Akesh in Gath. Now I'm not going to read the entire psalm, but let me at least read the beginning of it for you. Psalm 34, see the subscript? It says, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech. Now Abimelech is just another name for Akesh. Sometimes Abimelech was used to speak of a nucleus of Philistine leaders. So we're still talking about the same guy, the same place, Gath, the same situation, who drove him away and he departed. This is his response to God's deliverance. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my my. Fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man, he cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and deliver him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's interesting, isn't it? Taste. He's, he's, he's dealing with his fear and, and bread and the food and all this thing. Oh, taste. Taste and see. It's, it's not the bread that I needed. It was, the, it was the goodness of God that I needed. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord. Don't, don't fear man. Fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. 
The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In this speaking of a man's adversity, I was once afraid Running for my life, I failed to trust God. But when I started trusting God again, he proved himself faithful. He delivered. Come, let me tell you how God always delivers those who fear him and not man, who trust him and not themselves. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 18 tells us that he was repentant about it. The Lord is near those who have a broken heart. He saves such are as of a contrite spirit. I said we were going to read the whole chapter, but here we are at the end. Look at it in verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Even evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. But the Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those, none of those, none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. David was overwhelmed with gratitude to the Lord because God had delivered him. Now I want to close with this thought. We're done. Listen to me. God got David out of a mess that David himself made. Anybody ever made any messes of things? Oh, yeah. I've made messes as a husband. I've made messes as a father. I've made messes as a pastor. There's been many times I've made a mess out of things. But this is the amazing goodness of God. For in David, so it is with us. He delivers us out of the messes that we make even when we don't really deserve it. And when we think about how God delivers us out of the messes that we make even when we don't deserve it, how could we not say what David says? Oh, come and magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let's not forget who David is a picture of. Lord Jesus Christ, who in a season of adversity, Jesus is the perfect David. He didn't run, but there he submitted himself to the will of the Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. And as he hung on the cross, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what David should have done. Into your hands, God, I will put my life. I will not try to take control myself. But like David, we are always making a mess. But God in his grace and goodness is always delivering those who trust in him even when the mess is made. Thanks be to God. For his faithful grace and deliverance of our lives. And all God's people said, let's stand together for prayer.